Welcome to World War I Centennial News, episode number 60. It's about World War I then, what was happening a hundred years ago this week, and it's about World War I now, news and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. Today is February 23rd, 2018, and our guests this week include Dr. Edward Lengel with a story about the First Division's early encounter with gas warfare. Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog with a wrap-up story of the sinking of the Tuscania. Colonel Eugene Scott, U.S. Army retired, with the restoration of the 370th Regiment Victory Monument in Chicago. Taylor Gibbs and Livia Bartoli sharing their experience fundraising with the Commission's Poppy Program. Catherine Akey with the centennial of World War I in social media. All now on World War I Centennial News, a weekly podcast brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and the Star Foundation. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission, and your host. Welcome to the show. In October of 1917, Wilson signs the Trading with the Enemy Act into law, giving him sweeping new powers of managing and controlling international trade. We covered this in some detail during episode number 42, and here are the highlights. 1. Enemy-owned property can be seized. 2. Enemy intellectual property can be ignored. 3. The Treasury Department gets extensive powers over the international movement of precious metals and securities. 4. The Postmaster General gets total censorship rights over international communications, including telegraph. Interestingly, enemy is defined as somebody we have declared war on, or a nation that the President simply proclaims as an enemy, or a company engaged in commerce with an enemy or a company incorporated or operating in enemy territory, or a company that has ties to any one of the many things above. With free reign to seize and capture foreign properties, the administration sets up the Office of the Alien Property Custodian, putting a guy named A. Mitchell Palmer in charge of appropriating enemy-held properties. This week, a hundred years ago, using the Trading with the Enemy and the Espionage Acts as foundations, President Wilson goes the next mile and issues a series of proclamations, including taking total control of all foreign commerce of the United States. With that as a setup, it's time to jump into our centennial time machine and roll back 100 years to the war that changed the world. It's mid-February 1918. From the pages of the official bulletin, the government's war gazette published by George Creel, the nation's propaganda chief, comes the following. Dateline, Friday, February 15, 1918. The headline in the official bulletin reads... President issues proclamation for control of entire foreign commerce of United States. Licenses required for all imports and exports. And the story reads, The President has today issued two proclamations which will become effective tomorrow. 
After February 16, 1918, no commodities may be exported from this country or imported into this country except under license. The administration states that the military and the tonnage situation have made increasingly apparent the necessity of instituting a complete and thorough control of all our exports and imports. The entire second page of the article, all three columns, are dedicated to detailing the scores of types of goods now under import and export regulation, as well as the dozens of countries now under commerce restrictions. You can read the full text of the proclamation yourself, since we republish every issue of the official bulletin on the Commission's website at www.cc.org bulletin. Go to the February 15th issue and read the story on pages 1 and 2. In the same issue, the Treasury Department announces that they have begun a nationwide hunt for alien property to be impounded or confiscated. Headline Nationwide hunt for alien property is begun by U.S. custodian Palmer. Warning notices given. Persons evading law liable to $10,000 fine or 10 years imprisonment or both. As an aside, $10,000 in 1918 is the equivalent of $180,000 today. And the story reads... Federal agents have begun a search of the country from coast to coast to get in alien property still outstanding. Holders of property thus uncovered who have failed to report it may be fined or imprisoned or both. The law will be impartially enforced against all individuals or corporations who fail to report the possession of enemy property. But the Wilson administration's not stopping there. They're also going for total control of the railroads. Dateline, February 22, 1918. A headline in the New York Times reads, The Senate Passes Railroad Bill. And the story reads, With administration forces victorious on every contested point, the bill for government control of railroads passes the Senate tonight without a roll call. Determined efforts to prescribe limitations beyond which the president or the director general might not go in managing the railroads failed when senators of both parties rallied strongly behind Senator Smith of South Carolina, the administration's spokesman on the measure. And the story goes on to read, So generous was the Senate that the president is to be untrammeled by any existing law that he deems will handicap or hinder effective governmental control and management of the transportation systems. But there are those in the government that are getting worried about the executive branch gathering so much dictatorial power and where this may leave the nation after the hostilities cease. Dateline, February 19, 1918. In a New York Times headline, Watson criticizes power given to Wilson. Senator Watson opposes power extension for after the war ends. In the story, Senator Watson, a Republican, is quoted, I am willing to confer upon the president all the powers necessary to win this war. I have voted for several measures, the necessity of which I doubted because he stated that the authority sought was essential to the successful prosecution of this conflict. 
But I am not yet convinced that in order to win this war, it is necessary to confer upon the president these tremendous powers for a period of peace after the conflict shall have ceased. To that end, let us firmly resolve that with the proclamation of peace, the president shall surrender all these vast powers willingly conferred upon him by an aroused people because of the exigent necessities of war and that this nation shall return to the kind of republic founded by the revered fathers of this union. And so the Wilson administration consolidates its unprecedented and overarching power across all sectors of American industry, food production, transportation, finance, and trade. A hundred years ago this week, in the war that changed the world. Follow our research links in the podcast notes. This week on America Emerges, Military Stories from World War I, Dr. Edward Lengel recounts the story of the 1st Division, the Big Red One, in action as they face off a deadly gas attack. Welcome, Ed. I'm glad to be here, Teo. The Big Red One, the 1st Division, appropriately was the first to enter combat. And it entered combat on November 2nd, 1917, when the Germans launched a raid against the Big Red One troops at a place called Bethelmont, and the first three American soldiers were killed in action there. And a young Captain George C. Marshall investigated this event, and he determined that the uh, First Division troops really were not prepared. They were surprised. They didn't handle the raid very well. So it was kind of an embarrassment and a learning process for them. A short time later, General Robert Bullard was placed in command of the 1st Division, and Bullard was a very aggressive commander. He said, we're not going to wait for the enemy to come to us. We're going to come to them next time we're at the front. We're going to maintain constant pressure on the Germans with patrols, with raids, with surprise artillery bombardments. And he was as good as his word. When the 1st Division enters the lines again near a place called Ansovia in February of 1918, Bullard launches them in regular raids and patrols, and he maintains the pressure on the enemy, and he also experiments with gas attacks for the first time. The American artillery launches some gas shells, their chlorine and phosgene gas against the Germans. Uh, they're not very effective. The Germans kind of brush them away. But a short time later, the Germans send their response, and it is a devastating response. On February 26, 1918, 100 years ago, almost exactly, the Germans launch a massive mustard gas bombardment against the 1st Division troops. And now the 1st Division men had been trained on how to handle gas. Uh, they had been drilled. They knew they had to get their gas masks on quickly, that they needed to be prepared. But unfortunately, the equipment they had been given really was pretty deficient. Many of the masks were defective. And also, in some ways, the troops had drilled too much. Uh, they began to think that every alert was a drill, and they didn't take it seriously. So many of them did not respond quickly. Many of them paid the price. I'm going to quote a firsthand account of what happened. One man in panic stampeded and knocked down two others adjusting their masks. He rushed down the trench screaming and made no attempt to put on his respirators. He died shortly after reaching the dressing station. Another man threw himself in the bottom of the trench and began to scream. 
Two others trying to adjust his respirator had pulled off their own masks and were gassed. Another private couldn't find his respirator and became panic-stricken. And so it was a, a disastrous moment. Dozens of First Division troops were killed or severely burned by the gas. But if the Germans thought the Big Red One was down and out, they were wrong, because a few days later, they launched a full-scale assault against First Division lines and were beaten back pretty easily by the Big Red One, because they were ready and they learned quickly. This was yet another painful learning experience for the Doughboys on the Western Front, but it was another indication of how quickly they could learn those painful lessons and that they could readjust and prepare for the future. And within a few days, the Big Red One was ready to go again. Ed, next week, you'll be joining Catherine and I for our March Preview Roundtable. Looking forward to speaking with you then. I can't wait. Thank you. Dr. Edward Lengel is an American military historian, author, and our segment host for America Emerges, Military Stories from World War I. There are links in the podcast notes to Ed's posts and his website as an author. This week in The War in the Sky, we're going to look at some articles from The Times and The Bulletin. Dateline, Thursday, February 21, 1918. A headline in the New York Times reads, Foe comes and goes at will. Enemy airplanes view positions and take observations freely above the reach of guns. Only fighting air machines can stop their calm parade over enemy lines. And the story reads, Control of the air in the American sector belongs to the enemy. Any officer at the front will make this declaration, and all have made it. Every time the Germans come over, their path through the sky is followed by fleecy shrapnel puffs. But the chances of hitting an airplane with anti-aircraft shells at those high altitudes is so remote that the enemy aviators calmly fly along as if on a pleasure tour. The article closes with the question, When are some American planes coming here? Well, the answer is published on the very same day in the official bulletin. Dateline, Thursday, February 21, 1918. The headline reads, First American-made aerial warships now on way to the French battlefront. In the article, a statement by the Secretary of War reads, The first American battle planes are today en route to the front in France. The first shipment, though in itself not large, marks the first overcoming of the many difficulties met in building this new and intricate industry. These planes are equipped with America's first Liberty Motors. One of them, in a recent test, surpassed all records for speed and climbing for planes of that type. Engine production, which began a month ago, is now on a quality basis, and the peak of production will be reached in a few weeks. And so the first planes are shipping to France from the U.S. with the aim of changing the dynamics of the war in the sky 100 years ago this week. See the link in the podcast notes. Now on to The Great War Project with Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for The Great War Project blog. This week, Mike takes another look at the Tuscania sinking in the context of the great troop movements over the Atlantic. Our research for the podcast shows that this singular ship sinking was in the news for weeks and somehow marks a psychological watershed for the U.S. 
Perhaps it was the realization that we are in a real life and death struggle. What are the headlines, Mike? Well, Teo, the headlines read, a gathering flood of doughboys, millions of Americans crossing the Atlantic, Germany's first target at sea, the Tuscania, special to the Great War Project. The buildup of American troops on the Western Front is proceeding far too slowly, and the Americans know it. The Americans feared the worst for the coming year, writes one American officer a century ago. From a military point of view, Germany is stronger in the West today than it has been since 1914. Germany has 170 divisions against Britain's 54 and France's 93. That translates into more than half a million men for the British, nearly a million for the French. But with Germany no longer fighting a two-front war, a war against the Allies in the West and Russia in the East, it is moving millions of troops from the Eastern to the Western Front. By the end of January 1918, the Americans have a mere 180,000 troops in France, and only 85,000 of them are with the fighting troops. But that is set to change. In the scales against this gloomy foreboding, writes historian Gary Mead, was set the gathering flood of doughboys sailing across the Atlantic. The crossing is not without its risks. German U-boats still lurk in the waters off the coast of England and Ireland. They still attack the ships carrying troops from America. One in particular was a deadly attack on the ocean liner Toscania. The Toscania was the first troop ship carrying doughboys from the United States to France to be torpedoed in the First World War. She was attacked without warning in that killing ground favored by U-boats off the coast of Ireland. The Toscania, Meade writes, was the biggest disaster in the ferrying of American soldiers to Europe. On her last voyage, she left the port of Hoboken, New Jersey on January 24, 1918. She carried more than 2,000 American soldiers, as well as a crew of 384. She sailed in a convoy of 13 ships. In a ferocious squall, it was a miracle the U-boat could see anything at all, Meade writes. The ship was hit by a single torpedo. According to historian Meade, as so often, it was not the torpedo itself which caused the large loss of life, but the appalling weather conditions, the sub-zero temperature of the sea, and the swift onset of pitch-black night making searches impossible. The destroyers brought into the northern Irish port of Londonderry about 1,350, and another 550 were brought into a second port. Hundreds of others, Meade reports, were thrown onto the islands of the coast in their lifeboats. Some sank beneath the waves very quickly. The people of the islands did all that was humanly possible to rescue them. While they did save hundreds who might otherwise have been lost, 182 of the Toscania soldiers were flung ashore lifeless. According to historian Meade, this was the first time that a vessel filled with American troops on their way to the theater of war had gone to the bottom. Had it not been for the convoy and pure luck, most of the 2,500 on board would probably have perished. And that's the news from The Great War Project this week, 100 years ago. Mike Schuster from The Great War Project blog. For videos about World War I, we recommend The Great War Channel on YouTube. These veteran World War I story producers are offering several new videos this week, including Russian Pistols of World War I and No War, No Peace, Trotsky's Gamble, and France's War Aims and Refugees. To see their videos about World War I, follow the link in the podcast notes or search for The Great War on YouTube.
It's time to fast forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now. This section isn't about history, but rather it explores what's happening now to commemorate the centennial of the war that changed the world. A century in the making, the story of America's World War I memorial in Washington, D.C. In this segment, we take you on an insider's journey that explores this grand undertaking and the people behind it. It's been an exciting week for the memorial team. Late last week, the maquette in hand, the maquette being a 10-foot-long first draft miniature of the stunning sculpture of the memorial, the team set up for a meeting and review by the Washington Commission of Fine Arts, one of the governing bodies for what is and what is not built in the nation's capital. Good progress was made with the CFA commissioners, providing their insight and their feedback to the team. Then it was off to New York for the project's first exposure on national network television, as Commission Chairman Terry Hamby, sculptor Sabin Howard, and the maquette joined host Steve Ducey for an interview recording on the set of Fox & Friends. The segment aired this past Tuesday morning. Joining us right now here in the studio, sculptor Sabin Howard and the chairman of the U.S. World War I Commission, Terry Hamby. Good morning to both of you. Good Thank morning. Thank you for having us. Terry, Washington, D.C. has got every war memorial for every American war except for World War I. Why? It, it's a national tragedy that we've overlooked the service of 4.7 million Americans and the sacrifices that they made in World War I. They shape the world that we live in today. That's the reason the commission was formed. Uh, there's no longer a survivor of World War I, and it's up to us to speak for those who no longer are here so that they and their families may be recognized right. with this memorial. Well, the memorial is beautiful. You've already got the land. It's going to be to the east of the White House. Uh, Sabin, tell us a little bit about this, because this piece of art has never been done before. This is not the actual memorial. This is just a depiction of what it's going to look like. This is an idea of what it will become. So you're looking at a bronze wall that will eventually be created 65 feet in length, okay. 11 feet high, with 38 figures all marching towards the future, which is that uh -huh. image of World War II at the end. It's so beautiful, but it does come with a price. You're trying to raise the money, aren't you? We are. Uh, it was mandated that it be placed in Pershing Park by Congress, and it was also mandated that it be built with public funds. So we have a fundraising drive underway, and as I say, it's a national tragedy. These were the first men to deploy to a country that they'd never visited. Yeah fight in a war that they didn't start, and die for peace and liberty for people they didn't know. So it's up to us to recognize this sure. sacrifice. Well, it will be built. This is what it's going to look like. If you would like to find out how you can help, you can go to foxandfriends.com. Also, they've got a website. It's www.1cc.org. <laughs> All right. Guys, thank you very much for joining us live. You can see the full interview by going to www.1cc.org slash memorial, all lowercase. The airing resulted in thousands of page views on the memorial website, and most important, hundreds of people making their first donation to the project. Now the maquette and the team have set up for a special showing at the historic Willard Hotel. 
It's located directly across the street from Pershing Park, the future home of America's World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. It's been a big week for a wonderful project that's been a century in the making. Today, we're combining our Remembering Veterans and our 100 Cities, 100 Memorial segments with an interview with Colonel Eugene Frederick Scott, U.S. Army retired. Born in the South, raised in Chicago, and forged in the U.S. Army with a 28-year military career, including two tours of duty in Vietnam. A man like this doesn't retire. And in his post-military career, he became the publisher of the Chicago Daily Defender newspaper and a very busy social activist. Colonel Scott, along with his equally formidable wife, Beverly, who I suspect may be his secret weapon, showed up in my world during the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project when they submitted a Chicago monument to the 370th Infantry Regiment. Colonel Scott, welcome. Pleasure to be here. Colonel, let me start by talking local Chicago history. Can you give us an overview of the 370th and their role in World War I? I certainly can. The 370th was an all black regiment that was formed in Chicago in the early 1900s. As you know, at that time, the entire system was segregated. So it was the need to have some involvement from Black citizens, and this Black regiment was formed. The regiment saw active duty in Cuba and during the Mexican excursion as they tried to hunt down so they came into World War One with some combat experience and ended up being one of the most trained units to enter into the war. They entered into the war out of Camp Logan, Texas, city right outside of Houston. The interesting thing about Camp Logan was that just prior to the 370th arriving at Camp Logan, there was a worse riot in U.S. Army history, where soldiers of the 24th Infantry Division, a colored unit, entered downtown Houston, shot up the town, and killed about 15 civilians. As a result of that, the Army had a court-martial and hung 16 black soldiers. Don't hear a lot about that, but that was during the time as we built up for World War One. And many of the Southern communities did not want armed black soldiers coming in there to their community. The 370th left Texas, went to France, entered the war, and fought with the French. They were assigned to the French. There was really no place to put this all black combat unit commanded by a black colonel, Colonel Frank Dennison. Uh, so it, it was easier for the Army Expeditionary Force just to assign these units to the French. The French needed soldiers. Okay, we'll send these soldiers over. Uh, it, it ended up being just a tremendous opportunity for these soldiers to participate in combat, uh, earned uh, numerous medals and fought in many battles and displayed their bravery on many occasions, uh, one unit being recognized with a unit citation from the French, and the, and the soldiers of the 370 received over 61 French courtiers and 21 U.S. Distinguished Service Crosses. So they, they had a great experience in the war, 
and it led to uh, a lot of uh, camaraderie and respect with the French army and the French people. So, Colonel, one of the things that that I understand was that was really unusual about the 370th as a black unit was that they had black officers. Uh, th- that was unusual, wasn't it? That was quite unusual. The policy of the army at the time was that all black units were commanded by white officers. But it is this unique, the only unit in the army that is commanded by all black officers and entered into the war with that configuration. And it, it caused a lot of problems because the policy was that white officers commanded black troops. Colonel, about the monument, that's one of the awardees for the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project. Could you tell us about it? The monument was built in 1927 to recognize the feats of the 370th during World War One, And it also memorializes the over 120 soldiers that were killed from the Illinois 8th Regiment and the 370th. That monument is probably one of the most beautiful monuments in the city. It's made of granite and it's bronze and it has a soldier, a black soldier on the top of the monument in a combat position. It's just a just a breathtaking piece of art for the south side of Chicago. So Colonel, what other World War One Centennial projects are you working on? Well, one of the most exciting projects to Beverly and myself is our international French-U.S. student exchange program, where we have three high school groups that are participating in the exchange. We have a a jazz band from our Martin Luther King High School here in Chicago that will be going to France in September. And we have 12 cadets from the Chicago Military Academy that will be dressed in period uniform and participate in parades and ceremonies also in France. The bands will do concerts and the first concert is going to be here in Chicago uh, next month where the French school from Socions is going to come to Chicago and practice with the Chicago King High School Band and also visit sites around the city, stay with the students for a couple of days and just get to understand how U.S. students live. And then we'll make that exchange in September, where the U.S. students will go to France. That sounds like an amazing program. In fact, when they're here, maybe we can bring a couple of students on the show and just have them talk to us about what they're experiencing. Hey, that would be great. And I'm busy finding things for them to do because, you know, young people, you have to keep them occupied. So (laughs) I would certainly love, love to do that. Well, Colonel, thank you so much for coming on and telling us about all that today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Colonel Eugene F. Scott, U.S. Army retired and former publisher of the Chicago Daily Defender newspaper. Learn more about him and his projects by following the links in the podcast notes. Today in our education section, we're joined not by an educator, but by two very special entrepreneurial and dedicated young students, Taylor Gibbs 
and Livia Bartoli from the St. John the Evangelist Middle School in Watertown, Connecticut. They brought the Centennial Commission's Poppy Seed Fundraising Program to their school to help raise awareness for our World War I veterans and to help raise money for America's World War I Memorial at Pershing Park in Washington, D.C. Livia, Taylor, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hello. Hey, it's great to have you guys on the show. So when you got into this, how did you hear about the World War I Poppy Program and what made it appealing to you to get involved with? So this year for the Daughters of American Revolution Project, Livia and I decided to do community service and in researching ways we could volunteer or participate in the centennial celebration, we came across the Poppy Program and we chose it because we thought it would be a great way to give back to the community and to raise awareness about the Veterans and Memorial. Um, we also have family members that have fought for our country. My dad was in the Army and is a U.S. veteran. And um, I have great-grandparents that fought, too. So when you guys got into the program, how did it go? How'd the fundraising go? Um, it went well. We raised over $400 at St. John the Evangelist Church and the Southbury Thrift Shop. And all of the money that was donated, we um, sent to the memorial to help build it. Well, you know, there are no living veterans from World War I left, so we're the only people that can speak for those guys now, so you're doing a great job, and many thanks. Did you find the poppy packets increased interest in World War I from the buyers? Did it raise any questions? Um, yes, many people were curious of where the proceeds were going from donating, and some people had similar stories about their family being a part of World War I and fighting for our country. The other thing I wanted to ask you is, what advice would you give anyone else who wants to do a poppy packet program to raise funds? We would tell them that in buying the poppy seed packets, like in the box, you already are making a donation. And to go early when you're selling them to people, because people tend to be out earlier in the day, not too many were out at night. Have you guys been surprised at how much recognition you've gotten for doing this project? Yes, we really didn't think that we were going to be on this podcast today. We were actually very surprised, but we're also very grateful for this opportunity. Well, you know, there's a letter that went around at the commission that uh, talked about what you guys were doing. So somebody wrote an article about it, and then we heard about the article, and so then we decided to bring you on. It's great to have you on the show. So for each of you, what, what do you think you're going to remember most about doing this project? Spreading the awareness that the veterans need to be honored and they should have a memorial dedicated to them. That's a great answer. Well, ladies, thank you so much for joining us, and you've been a delight to have on the show. Thank you for thank having you. us. Have a good day. Thank you, you too. Taylor Gibbs and Livia Bartoli are students at the St. John the Evangelist Middle School. Learn more from their efforts and the Poppy Seed Program by visiting www.cc.org/poppy or by following the link in the podcast notes. To wrap up education this week, the latest World War I education newsletter just came out. Issue 11 is women in war, and focuses on the diverse roles women took on to support the war both abroad and at home. This issue includes resources for teaching about the Hello Girls, female yeomen, women warriors in Russia, women's rights in Turkey, and the legacy of the women's suffrage movement. The newsletter is published by the National World War I Museum and Memorial in partnership with the World War I Centennial Commission. 
go to our new education website at www.cc.org edu, where you can sign up for the education newsletters and connect with the Commission's education program, or just follow the link in the podcast notes. This week for our updates from the states, we're actually going to look at something from 100 years ago. In our research this week for our Then History section, we found this really interesting map that was published in the February 21 issue of the official bulletin on page 8. The headline reads, Cost per man drafted for service as indicated by state. That's worth a look, with Delaware recruitment for the most costly per soldier at $19 and Oklahoma the least at $1.57. The average draftee inducted cost the government $4.93 each. Check out the article on the map to see what it cost in your state. See page 8 of the February 21 issue of the official bulletin at www.cc.org bulletin or just follow the link in the podcast notes. And now for our feature, Speaking World War I, where we explore the words and phrases that are rooted in the war. In 1914, the French army still used the same military uniforms they'd had for decades, with vibrant red pantaloons and bright white gloves. (laughs) The see-me-shoot-me uniforms were one of the factors that led to their rout by the German army in the first few months of the war. In response, the French launched a special unit in 1915, whose members, mostly artists, were known as camoufleurs. The French term, se camoufler, means to hide oneself. This led to this week's speaking World War I word, camouflage. Now, camouflage is also a popular clothing style, most often referred to in slang as camo. From a military definition standpoint, the word denotes the disguising of military personnel, equipment, and installations by painting or covering them to make them blend in with their surroundings. With planes scouting every mile of active front for troop movements, ammunition stores, and other valuable information, hiding in plain sight became increasingly important. So armies looked to nature for ideas on how to hide tanks, hospitals, snipers, bridges, even ships from the enemy's prying eyes. Camouflage. This week's Speaking World War I word. See the podcast notes to learn more. While we're talking about words, in this week's Stars and Stripes issue from their ongoing feature, A Doughboy's Dictionary, our favorite definition this week is socks. Socks are defined as foot coverings composed of a substance represented to the government or the Red Cross as being wool and possessed of the same capacity for contracting holes as a machine gun target at 50 yards. Read all of this week's Stars and Stripes newspaper from 1918 by following the link in the podcast notes. For World War I war tech, we're going to talk about the depth charge. U-boats were the scourge of the seas, taking out almost 5,000 ships over the course of the war. German U-boats especially focused their attack on British shipping, both military and commercial. The Royal Navy considered many possible strategies to defeat this threat, but none seemed viable until the summer of 1916, when a naval engineer named Herbert Taylor perfected the hydrostatic trigger, allowing for a weapon that could be detonated when it experienced a certain level of water pressure, in other words, at a certain depth. 
The underwater pressure explosions were devastating to the submarine hulls while not damaging the surface ships. Though only two U-boats were sunk by depth charges in 1916, production was increased as the conflict went on, and by the end of the war, the Royal Navy had used depth charges to sink 20 submarines. And that's this week's World War I War Tech. Read more about depth charges during World War I at the link in the podcast notes. In articles and posts from our rapidly growing website at ww1cc.org, this week we're featuring an article about the African American women who served in the Army Nurse Corps during World War I. Eighteen African American women served stateside, and their story is not well known. Their courage in overcoming the discrimination and segregation barrier still resonates today. The story of one of these nurses, Frances Reed Elliott Davis of North Carolina, is particularly poignant. She was the orphaned daughter of a white woman and a half-Cherokee, half-black sharecropper. She faced enormous challenges in her life, overcoming them to become the first officially registered African-American nurse in the Red Cross. Read more about her and other African-American nurses at the link in the podcast notes. In our Write blog, which explores World War I's influence on contemporary writing and scholarship, this week's post also helps us wrap up February's theme as African American History Month. The post title comes from a poster that reads, This colored man is no slacker. Now, slacker was a World War I term for those who avoided the draft. And in 1919, the slogan on this World War I-era poster inspired two young African-American sisters from West Virginia to write and publish a book of poems whose intention was to show the Negroes' loyalty to the Stars and Stripes in the war with Germany and to show the need of unity of all men in the fight for democracy. Read the story about these young women's literary work supporting the patriotism of African Americans in World War I at www.cc.org slash W-W-R-I-T-E or by following the link in the podcast notes. And that brings us to The Buzz, the centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Hi there, Teo. This week's most popular posts on social media were all about one thing, the flu. With this year's flu season proving long and deadly, it's no surprise that people are drawing parallels to the great flu of 1918. Against the backdrop of this year's flu season, World War I Centennial Commissioner Dr. Libby O'Connell discussed the deadly Spanish flu pandemic at the Museum of American Armor in New York. Dr. O'Connell observed that 20 to 50 million people died from the flu pandemic, far more than all of those who died during the war. An estimated 43,000 American doughboys died of the disease, and a third of all Americans would become infected with the Spanish flu, which ravaged the world for an entire year. You can find links to some photographs and an article from Newsday of Dr. O'Connell's talk in the podcast notes. I've also included a link to an article we shared from the Wichita Eagle, a newspaper out of Kansas, outlining the spread of the so-called Spanish flu from its epicenter. That's right, it seems that Kansas, not Spain, was the ground zero for the deadly, world-changing flu of 1918. Read more about the flu's origins in Kansas 100 years ago and how they tried in vain to stop its spread by visiting the link in the podcast notes. That's it this week for The Buzz. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of World War I Centennial News. We also want to thank our guests, Dr. Edward Lengel, military historian and author, Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog, 
Colonel Eugene Scott, U.S. Army retired and former publisher of the Chicago Daily Defender newspaper. Taylor Gibb and Livia Bartoli, students at the St. John the Evangelist Middle School. Catherine Akey, the Commission's social media director and the line producer for the podcast. Also, thank you to our intern, John Morellis, for his great research assistance. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. This podcast is a part of that, and we do thank you for listening. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, as well as the Star Foundation for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at www1cc.org cn, on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Podbean, or the other places that you get your podcasts, and even on your smart speaker. Just say, play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thank you for joining us. And don't forget to share the stories you're hearing here today about the war that changed the world. How you gonna keep them down on the farm after they've been buried? Can you see me? I'm wearing my camouflage. Oh, wait, this is audio only. So never mind. So long.